podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kessler, with my co-host, Ben Bateman. We're back. Back talking magic. Uh, it's an exciting time in magic. We have more uh, outside interest on magic right now than we've ever had in the history of magic as Lord of the Rings has flooded the market space. Uh, lots of packs. Exciting stuff. Alex and I got to both announce, actually, since last we talked to you guys, that we were uh, invited to be a part of the Magic Ambassador program, which this is super is true. cool. I was wearing my jacket today. I wore my jacket around town It's a nice jacket. Today. It's a nice jacket. Yeah. It, it does like, have the one problem. So this, is an, this is a me problem. This isn't the jacket's problem. I have just, like, long arms and short shoulders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, often my size of jacket, getting a jacket that, like, actually reaches my wrists is just, like a rare occurrence and I can go extra sure. large, but then it looks like I'm like twice my weight because the, because my shoulders aren't wide. So like if the jacket is an extra large, it's like the shoulder pads are falling on my biceps. So like finding a good jacket that has like thin shoulders, but long arms, a life changing experiences. I, I, if I have a jacket, I like it, it lasts. Um, but yeah, other, other I don't. That, it's a very comfy jacket. <laughs> I don't love the way it fits me, I'll be honest, but I thought it was cool enough that I wanted to wear it, so I did. Uh, it's a very cool jacket. I think it looks great. So, But yes, the Ambassador Program, awesome. It's a super cool thing we both got to do, and uh, we'll be continuing to talk to you guys about and post about, so make sure you're following uh, any of the socials that we do because they're they're providing us with great material to, to share with you and really cool stuff. So that's awesome. Um, but we are we're back this week to mostly talk about the one ring and look the card the one ring if you've been paying any attention to magic alex and i have both talked pretty extensively over the course of the last week on various platforms about this the power of the card itself because like turns out the one ring as good as we thought it was and i would say alex we were pretty high on it right yeah like, we did an entire episode talking about high. i mean i like i thought it was like actively good and maybe great and maybe phenomenal yeah. and it's I would still version. say as good as I would say it's still as good as we thought that card was it's better yeah it's I like it's 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 an all-star in every format that it's legal in um I, I thought there would be like thing, some cool decks built around it that were good and it probably would fit into some other decks it's like fitting in every deck and is like a CDH staple now too it's being played in every format yeah I mean I think there's I think there's like a couple different reasons it's so good I think Protection from everything is a really important text line. It's like not a text line that's super common. I, I did a TikTok this week talking about it, how it's the sixth card in the history of magic that has the text line protection from everything. And of those six cards, three of them are creatures like Progenitus has it. Uh, Hex drinker, you can level up to have it. And there's like this commander creature that makes, gives your commanders, I think, protection from everything. There's like three of them that are creature specific. It's just this Teferi's Protection and that weird like coffin card from Brothers War. Mm-hmm. The Infinity Coffin or something, whatever it's called. Uh, those those three cards are the only three cards that actively grant you protection from everything. Um, just themselves. And it's it's interesting because just the fact that this is the first time they've they've printed it on like a like a good permanent, like just a card you can cast that's good is pretty revolutionary. And then you add that to the fact that if you can take advantage of the artifact untapping and putting like extra burden counters on it and whatnot, like draw a lot of cards. So, so the one ring is nuts. I think, I think if you have played against it or you've played with it, you can acknowledge this card is it's not black Lotus. It's not like the best magic card ever printed, but it, it is fitting of its title. Yeah. I think that's good too. Right. I mean, I think, I think like, when you have a card that's colorless, that does so many things that different colors might want to have, yeah. that immediately gains you value and protects you, like you're gonna have a pretty winning package, right? Like, like I, I think like if we were down on it, it was like it's a four mana sorcery, right? But like it does everything you need a card to do to get over that problem, right? I mean, a good example, it's, it's very Sphinx's revelation to me in the sense yeah. that like the reason Sphinx's revelation was powerful is because you could use it to both stabilize as well as put you ahead. And that's what the one ring is doing. It's just doing it in a more efficient long-term package 
that's needs less mana, right? It's, it's not as mana intensive as, as Sphinx's Rev was. And Sphinx's Rev has seen modern play. This is just Sphinx's Rev on colorlessness. It's also easier to cheat out colorless artifacts than it is to cheat out multicolored instants. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot you can do that's going to let you cast the, the one. Like, if you play the right CDH opening hand, you're going to be able to cast this on turn one, but turn two pretty like reliably. Oh, like yeah. a soul ring gets this on turn two. Oh, and, and so, in, in, in commander, the fact that like its main drawback is life loss is like, there's a reason Adnos is like one of the most played CDH cards of all time. And it's because right. your life does it. Your life, you have so much extra life that costs based on life for formats that are 20 card formats or limited. Like don't function correctly in that format. So that's the card, the one ring, which you can listen to our older episodes. We've talked about it pretty, pretty at length. And no one on the Internet right now is going to tell you this card is anything other than very good. The thing that we want to talk about on today's episode is for the first time in magic history, magic. I, I take small, really quickly, small umbrage with that statement, because uh, I can find someone on the Internet that could tell me anything. <laughs> Honestly, I did a TikTok this week talking about how good the one ring was, and at least several people said it was bad. So yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, but. The conversation today is not about the power of the card, the One Ring. It's about the fact that Magic has now, for the first time ever in the history of Magic, we've heard nothing but people talking about this for the last couple of weeks, introduced the first one-of-one one card you could pull from a booster pack. There have been one-of-one one Magic cards before, but they were special printings from Wizards for you to be able to get. Uh, you know, Richard Garfield has one. There's like, there are one-of-one one Magic cards, but they weren't cards no, that you I know there's only two. There's yeah, the, right? the dragon, and then there's there, and they're both you want it. They were championship trophies, like they're in a trophy. world champion, 1996 yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. whatever that card is. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the so, Richard Garfield printed a limited run, I think a couple sheets of his wedding announcement and child announcement as yeah. cards. Those are the other like similarly rare though. Though now though, there's Wizards employee achievement cards that they make. That's like the third. Sure. We're talking about right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but go. But that being said, the first time ever that you could open a card in a Magic card pack that was the one, the one of one version. This is the first time ever. So what we wanted to talk about today was two things. Number one, we're thirty years into Magic, as as this is the thirtieth anniversary year. What has been the path from the the inception of Alpha in nineteen ninety three to this moment? Where did where did Magic sort of see their opportunities and develop, and what were the what were the beats along the way that you might have been a part of, not even realized maybe that like this was happening, and now that we've had the first serialized one of one, what does that mean going forward? Uh, we're in the sport, you know, sports and trading card industry, right? That's what a, that's what a TCG plays in the same space as, and the idea of one of one and you know five of five whatever cards that exists in sports all the time. Like there's a, a huge trend of you know, signed piece of Jersey, Michael Jordan, one of three cards that are worth $300,000 kind of a thing like that. You pay two grand for the pack to open one card, right? Like that's a thing that is very common now in sports cards. So it's not like this is a new phenomenon. It's just magic hadn't really played in this space specifically until semi recently. And so I think we're going to have a conversation about that and what it means for the future of the collectability of magic and what we can expect going forward. Before we do a uh, big thank you to all of our patrons. Those of you that listen to the pre-show, we had a whole conversation about uh, Alex predictably accusing me once again of hating child childhood magic kids ben, movies. Ben, like Ben, it's, he just hates children. He thinks that I don't, I love Ash. Your son is wonderful. No, he like talks shit about Ash all the time. He says, That's not true. <laughs> he only respects things that can drink scotch. That's yeah. the, that's the line. <laughs> so, uh, but but yes, we we want to thank all of you guys for listening to the pre-show, uh, patrons. We you have supported us for now 400 episodes, which is amazing. And those 400 episodes and and, and a lot of the content we've made has a big reason why Wizards was as generous as they were to recognize us in this ambassador program, which is super cool. And we're very happy to be a part of it. So. Um, and uh, of course, also shout out to Channel Fireball, uh, you know, where if you uh, want to find us on a Magic the Gathering website, you can find us there, uh, as well as if you are looking to buy Magic the Gathering cards, uh, we uh, Channel Fireball is bought by TCG Player. It's now one unified store location, uh, and we have an affiliate code in the link below. You just click on that when you want to buy cards, and it'll uh, 
recognize that we sent you. Uh, and then also, um, this episode is sponsored by uh, Cascant, the game company that I founded and Ben is a part of. And uh, we have uh, we made two big announcements that are both launching at Gen Con, Murder We Wrote, which is a uh, true crime podcast party game. But then more importantly, Spike's Family, the uh, the card game, uh, Mission for Peanuts. Uh, if you know the show, it's an anime. It's very, it's very, very, very cute. I highly recommend it, especially for you, even if you don't like anime, it's a great entry point. And then we're making a really cool uh, social kind of card game uh, that's a blast and we'll be launching at Gen Con as well. And don't bury the lead just because it's coming out a little later, but a few months later, we're going to be launching uh, Sonic, which is, we we, we announced we're doing a, a Sonic game with Sega, which is incredibly cool. The game looks amazing. It's been so fun to develop and test and uh, that'll be coming to you guys right around the holidays or beginning of 2024. So get excited for, for that. You'll be able to find that all over the place. Um, so let's get into the topic. Uh, first question, Alex Kessler, have you ever opened a serialized magic card in a pack before? Have I opened one? No, I own yeah. two. But you've opened a good amount of collector boosters. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a vibe right now with collector boosters that exists, which is like, not every set, but the last few years, there has been a focus on you can you can pull the golden ticket, so to speak. Now, the one of one ring is its own unique beast, right? The fact that that card is now valued at roughly $3 million, the person that pulls it is going to get to sell it for that much, uh, is kind of different than, you know, pulling a serialized card that might be worth like a thousand bucks or like 2000 bucks or something like that. That being said, collector booster packs have the ability to feature very high-end expensive cards now. And that comes from somewhere. That comes from the fact that, you know, Magic's creation in 1993, from 1993 until the printing of the first foil, which the very first set to have a foil was Urza's Legacy. The second Urza set, which I believe came out in like 98, 99, is the first time you could ever pull a foil card. Urza Saga, famously, Guy's Cradle, right? That whole cycle. They made judge foils of those cards, but you couldn't actually open a foil card. So for Magic's first six years, you would buy a box of draft booster pack, whatever, and there was one version of every single card you could get. Just one. Only one. Nothing else you could get. There was no chase factor. The most valuable card. You also, like a year before that, you didn't even know what rarity was. Like mm -hmm. the actual cards themselves were all black, all, all of the set symbols. There wasn't silver or gold or mythic, especially because that rarity didn't even exist. It was all just a black symbol. So you, you had to look up to see if your card was actually worth, was the rare and the, a rare card, or you had to know when you opened a pack, what position the rare card was in to even know if the card was a rare or an uncommon or a common. And it's and it's it's indicative of how much sort of of the Wild West magic was back then that like what you're just discussing there uh, of the rarity symbol color being added to cards happened in the third set in a block. <laughs> Tempest and Stronghold were black and then they yeah. introduced that in Exodus, which was the third piece of the block. And now you could was, know like it was strong. It was the bridge. Well, it's Stronghold is the bridge one, right? No, Exodus is the third Exodus one. The the block. Bridge. OK, yeah, it was Exodus. And and that's the first time. And then the, you know, then then right after that was Urza's Saga, and then one set later was Urza's Legacy, where all of a sudden now you could open, you could open foils. So like Grim Monolith, which, like which that. That summer is what got me to quit Magic. So I've only quit Magic once, and it was right then. And it was because three things happened. One, I hated, I hated for for no reason. I think it's because it it showed me that I was a fool. I hated. That there was rare, like I hated the fact that they had the logo show which type of rarity it was. Why'd you hate that? Because I think I think in hindsight, looking back at the time, I thought it was just corny or something. I thought it looked didn't look as cool, but I think in hindsight, it was because I like it showed me which cards I was getting ripped off by my friend. Like I think it informed uh, me that I had been ripped off a few times. Sure, I felt, sure, sure. I felt the fool, um, but it was also indicative of the next two things. The next one was that unglued came out that summer. So immediately sure. it came out between Tempest and, and Urza Saga. And I just thought Unglued was the dumbest stuff ever. And then the last one was Foils. I thought it was like, I mean, it, it, first off, so so the history of foiling in general, it was on baseball cards forever. But then Pokemon was actually the first trading card game to include foil. So foils at the gate for were on Charizards. And literally like the Pokemon TCG became popular 
right around the launch of Urza Block. It was a basically like neck and neck, a lot, almost the exact same time. Pokemon blew up that same fall. And within the next two sets, Wizards added foils to Magic the Gathering. And from my perspective at the time, even though literally the next year I started playing Pokemon more than Magic, I, I saw it as like a little kid's thing getting applied to Magic the Gathering. Like the, them incorporating this foil technology was like, oh, that's like for young, that's for babies. I don't want that anymore. I'm moving on. Yeah. So what's interesting about that is you can trace back to that moment, the Urza's block as the final, it's the final iteration, I think, of old magic in most people's minds. I mean, you can certainly look at, you know, everything from Mirrodin to Time Spiral and say that's old magic. But when you talk about classic magic, like the old sets, the Urza's block in many ways represents the end of the first run. And it's, it's, Interesting that within a set of, you know, either side of it, you had rarity and foil both introduced. All of a sudden, the stakes were higher as a collector. They recognized the money involved. And you could all of a sudden, as a player, track what you were getting. And you could tell if you had the good version of something or the less good version of something, right? So from that point forward, the next few years, they didn't do anything particularly innovative when it comes to collectability. You had stuff start getting introduced there within the next couple of years. So like right around that time is where you have the FNM promos and the players reward promos starting DCI judge foils all in the next few years around 2000. That's where you have the Gaius cradle uh, judge foil that gets printed the wheel of fortune judge foil cards that are on the reserve list that there is a foil printing of well, because, because they, it was considered a loophole. It was a loophole until yeah. from the vault that like and and like promos because there are promos were kind of getting under the radar and then they printed right. a product that you could buy foil reserveless cards in with from the vault relics and then that's when everyone was like right so that, so oh, what's okay. interesting about the whole that whole period of time and and by the way like if we're tracking the history of collectability of magic the history of that runs pretty far it's not like they they didn't react with a lot of swift moves for about a decade cuz You've got foils and rarities getting introduced in 98, 99. Judge promos and player awards promos and all that. That all happens right within a couple of years there. And you can find some of the old ones that are really fun. But all through those next sets, everything from Mercadian Masks block, like Onslaught block, Odyssey, like the whole next three, four years up to the card, the card face change in Mirrodin, they're just lower powered magic sets. They're just not as they're just not as good as Urza's. In some cases, they're terrible. Like Mask Block is really bad. Um, they kind of reinvent Magic a little bit with the new card face in 2003. Well, but still, that's, from a card that's considered that era is also it's it's like Rosewater considers it the third era, right? Like it's like because that that's the other thing that we haven't really mentioned because Tempest was the first block, right? Technically, Mirage was like right before it, but it wasn't designed as a block. It just like loosely became right. a block. Tempest into Urza Saga was the first time they did blocks ever. And then that was followed by rarity and that being added. Like it's a, that's a big turning point. And as far as rarity, like rarity goes, I mean, before that, probably the rare cards were the book cards. So that's where uh, Mana Vault comes from, right? Or Mana Crypt, yeah. Mana Crypt comes from, which was it was a you only got a Mana Crypt if you bought it in a book originally. So funny. I'd love I'd love to buy a a, a nine ninety nine paperback and get a Mana Crypt. Sounds great. And then <laughs> and then with the block structure though, also came the mechanical structure, right? It became like Urza Saga was technically an enchantment themed block, which I think is always like an under the radar fact. Uh, then you had, and I forget all the names, but there's the one that's all tribal. It's all different creatures. It's all typal. It's all different creatures. You have the Legion, one that was then yeah. graveyard themed and leaned towards black mana being more powerful. And then you had, but then you also had stuff like masks block, which was a direct response to how broken Urza was where like the three head designs of wizards got brought into the, the president's office being like, you will all lose your jobs unless you fix how broken Urza Saga was. And that's what masks, the power level yeah. that you're mentioning kind of came from. And then the <laughs> next time that meeting happened, it was after period in block. So, so what's interesting is you go through those next few years and from a rarity and collectability perspective, nothing is changing really. Like you, you should quit magic around that time, but my brother, I've told the story on here a bunch of times, had his whole magic collection thrown away in his college dorm. And at the time, he had a full, you know, every mox and tons of duels, and he had a full set of Arabian Nights. 
at the time that loss represented a good amount of money. Like it represented at the time a loss of at least 15 or 20 grand. But when you compare that to now and you look at what the most expensive cards were, at the time they were just the rarest, oldest magic cards. He didn't have any foils. He wasn't buying modern cards. And as you went through that next phase of 2002 and three and four and five and six, I'm talking all the way through, like you get to like Time Spiral, Lorwyn, like the whole bit. All that's happening is the old stuff is skyrocketing. The original power, all those cards from you know, Alphabet Unlimited. A couple really rare cards, like, like Gaius Cradle, the Judge Foil was getting really expensive. There were certain cards that were starting to spike. But those well, first years or two, rares, though, right? It was all bit like Tarmogoyf, right? Was a seventy dollar card because it was this extended staple. It was a standard. Like that's staple. compared to like a ten ten thousand dollar Black Lotus. I'm saying, I'm saying, like the the peak of what you were getting was still within two hundred bucks, well, maybe a hundred. Back then, like I could, I, I, the Black Lotus we used in top decking, which was two thousand ten, which was beat up, but signed by Richard Garfield. Yeah. Five hundred bucks was what the what it was for sale at the store. That's and so crazy. Legends packs were literally for fifty dollars a pop. That's so crazy, right? Like, and that's two thousand. That's only twelve years ago. So, like, it, it, yes, Tarmogoyf being seventy dollars at the time is significantly less than that. But at the time, you could also buy most dual lands for seventy bucks. Like a Tarmogoyf was worth more than a Badlands, right? So True. Like, the blue ones, the blue ones were worth like two, three hundred. But like the yeah, the cheaper yeah, ones yeah, were cheap. Yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. Like, but you can get a you could get a legacy dual mana base for what you could right now use uh, uh, allied colored fetches are more expensive than what duels lands were at the time. So I think, I think, but in reality, like going through the entire era, the next time Wizards of the Coast really starts messing with rarity is, and they do it multiple ways. Um, and we kind of brought it up earlier with, with from the Ralph relics, but it's, it's the time around that shards of Alara block came out where you had the introduction, the introduction of mythic rarity, so you no longer just have the, the four rarities or, or, you know, land, common, uncommon, rare. You now have mythic rare. You have the From the Vault series, which did its second run is the relics one that had the reserve list cards that then broke the loophole along with it was a dual deck that had um, Frixie Negator was the other one that also broke the rule. And between those two, they sure. got rid of the, the loophole uh, with the reserve list. You had um, the, the all foil Lara packs. So yeah, you could buy like there. I think I can't remember if they were called God packs or or if that was something later. But they were they were they were super packs. They were you, yeah. it was a hundred percent foil cards. It was it was yeah. It was like it was like twelve dollars. I've said something about collector boosters. It was just the exact same set as is all foil. If you ever wonder why foils of Alara block are weirdly not as expensive as other 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 sets from that era, it's because they were they literally released boxes that were a failure of a product of all foil packs. And then the other thing they started doing then was the all foil decks as well. So there was the great, there was the, I think the first one was the lightning bolt. It was the burn deck and then they did a graveyard reanimator deck, um, which I bought like four of because it had reanimate and animate dead foils in it. And then there was a third one and then, then they cut that product. Oh yeah. Before. Yeah. There was the slivers one. The, the slivers, slivers one. was the third one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 that's right. I forgot about those, the all foil decks. And then and then the last product, right, in 2010-11, they got, that started getting released, Commander decks was the last one. Yeah. And and, it, and they released the first one in 2010-11. And so there were certain cards printed for Commander, and there were certain reprints, and it started to just sort of change the face of card availability. This, is, this was the, the major expansion, Magic experienced of, we need to figure out ways to have products for all people. Like that was that was like the whole focus in 2010. New World Order happens, like complexity at common changes, and there starts to be this idea that the core of this game, the limited environment, is going to exist forever. Magic Online is popular. There's a cash cow here that represents we can print JPEGs, but if we want the paper product to sell and keep selling, we've got to find ways to make multiple different types of products. Within a couple of years of this, if I recall. You have all kinds of weird stuff. Everything from Arch Enemy to Plane Chase getting introduced. Like, well, and just and, well, that was like supplemental project. But even in Rarity, literally the next set Zendikar after a Lara block. The next block they added the you could open literal Power Nine in packs in the first print run at the same time. Yeah, that's a really important thing. You know, it's not it's not to be glossed over. So some people don't even remember this, but. 
in Zendikar, released, I believe, in 2011, they they didn't announce how many packs, but it was like one in every like crazy rarity, probably similar to a serialized card, pro- probably even rarer, to be honest. Uh, I, I think you could open significantly rare. Yeah. You could open a classic card from like Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, uh, Legends. Like I know somebody who opened a force field at one point. Somebody else I knew, I thought, I think I know somebody who opened like a Chains of Mephistopheles. I think you could open there. They, and apparently there was a Lotus, at least one Lotus you could open. Um, and this was a thing that they did to incentivize players to buy packs. Now that's so much less of like a, a, a thing that is existing at the time. That wasn't like a program. That was like a really, really, really exciting incentive, but it wasn't like a type of product they were releasing. It was more. It was honestly more similar to like the One Ring vibe than anything else. Like yeah. you're never going to open one of these, but you could, you know. And 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 then that gets followed. The first set was Battle for Zendikar. So literally, I mean, interestingly, it kind of is sandwiched with the two Zendikar. Because to your point, from that point on, they released some cool products. There were foil like promo stuff that's included in things, but for the most part, the rarity and packs and the way that packs presented product doesn't change very much it's the next next time they do it which is the return to zendikar which is the expeditions and that's the first slash next big moment in in like rarity history where they really added something special into booster packs and then decided for the next x sets they're going to do it for every set so so zendikar block had it then that was followed by um amaket block had it and kaladesh had it right those are the three sets because you had inventions, masterpieces, and invocations. Because they didn't do it. It was successful with, with them. They didn't do it for Shadow's Block. Shadow didn't have anything. And then Kaladesh, yeah. which was the following, had the artifacts and then the invocations for Amakan. So yeah, those yeah. four. In that two-year period, they did it three times. And the response at first was amazing, right? But the response over time became, oh, this is making every other card that they're printing worthless. Like if you look at the so value that, of any of the sets that those, those are in, if it's not one of those, the inventions, the invocations or the expeditions, they're not worth anything. And literally up to the point where Ixalan block, which they were going to do the, the, all of the flip cards have that back frame, the, the map frame. Yeah. They were going to do those were going to be, the next style and then they decided oh these are these are hurting you know the complaint these aren't working for whatever reason let's not do that and we'll use this really cool frame as the back of all of the flip enchantments yeah so what's interesting about that decision is that the i would i would argue that of all the things we just discussed you know going back to that 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 1998 1999 rarity foil thing it changes magic's face a lot as a from a collectability perspective but you're still just buying the same product you're still just buying the same product and getting a different result uh and foils were common enough in packs at the time and a rare was in every pack so it was more just like hey every pack you're going to know the best card and every six packs you're going to get something special but most of the time it won't be very good so it like made magic better but it didn't make magic better in a like i'm playing the lottery kind of a way just made it in like a you know i'll be excited when something shiny comes up that i want uh and sometimes i'll get lucky i'll be worth a lot of money the difference between that and the introduction of the expeditions was now for the first time, magic had a reason to aggressively crack packs because lands by and large, classically are magic's most consistently expensive commodity. So your chances were pretty hard, pretty high to crack something rare that you were going to be really excited about. Like it, everybody I knew that cracked one was super hyped. Like, like, and they were amazing. Those, that first set of them was so good. And so, but the difference between what they did then and kind of what we're going to get to in a second of what they're doing now is that you're still just opening draft boosters. It's You can't buy a different pack to change your chances. All you can do is buy more packs. So if you're drafting, maybe you'll open one. Maybe you won't. If you crack a case, maybe you'll open one. You probably won't. It The only thing you could do to increase your chances was buy more product. You just had to buy more packs. And I think that within a couple sets, Wizards realized 
okay, this is not actually doing what we want. People that open them are excited, but everybody else kind of thinks that what they're opening is dog crap. Like they're opening a well, lot I think, of trash. I think it also, <laughs> there, there are three flaws, not flaws, because there's a debate on what's good and what's bad, but there are three things that made Wizards dislike the problem. One, um, they realized that doing those regularly there weren't enough themes that they could include enough excitement cards that every expedition would be exciting. So like after the invocations were like, okay, this is instant sorceries. When they got to Ixalan, they were going to do lands again. And they're like, wait, we did lands already. I don't think this is like, there's not that the, the card pool for exciting cards to print in this format is not as deep as we thought it was. And so that's one, two, what I mentioned, like the devaluing of packs was an issue. Um, and three, they went too deep. Uh, it, and this is the thing they fixed when they, cause they, they brought this back, right? This is basically what the mystical archive is. It's basically what, um, the retro artifacts were in brothers war. Um, it's what the legendary creatures were in, 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 um, after, not aftermath, March of the machines. But the difference is they realized that if there, we include a ton of these, and every pack gets one of these cards instead of one out of a hundred gets this cool alternate art meant to be a hundred dollars plus card. It's every pack gets one of these and 90% of them are just really cool, flavorful reprints, but 10 of them are actually chase reprints or five of them are actually chase reprints. It goes a lot farther and it is a lot more fun and limited, but B it goes a lot farther to like not break parody now I think this gets broken with the zero out of a X, whatever, you know, the serialized yeah, yeah, cards. Yeah. But I think like the idea of the Mystic Archive is the perfect solution. To the problem that they had with expeditions, which is. Well, that you dart back for a second on that one, just, yeah. just for a minute. Yeah, and yeah. and it's something we didn't actually talk about, which is that in 2007, the introduction of the first of the first alternative sheet was introduced with time. The time shifted sheet yes. represents the first time magic had ever said, we're going to take old cards. We're going to put them as a one of one slot, not a one of one slot, but as a one of card in your pack. And some will be really cool and some will be trash, but every pack's going to get one and it'll be exciting because the border is going to be old border and you'll be excited to open it. And I would say that playing Time Spiral, it was a great idea. Like, I remember opening it in Time Spiral and really liking it. And it didn't seem like it at the time, but a time-shifted foil was, it turns out, those foils are pretty expensive now. Like, they're pretty rare. So they've, you know, but it's also a long time ago. Those, those cards are also 17, 16, 17 years old now. Um, but I would say that introduction paved the way for one of Magic's other things that we get consistently now, which the Mystical Archive is probably the best version we've ever had i'd say you mentioned that just now like yeah i think for the alternative sheet mystical archive was a lot of flavorful spells a lot of spells that were really good some that were really desirable and the fact that you could get them in alternate art you could get them in a different language you could get them in foil which which, like, which I, I don't want to get too deep into that because it yet because it's skipping ahead spoilers because I, I do want to bring there's a few things that that happened in between as well kind of you brought up times for our block the other, because I think I think Thomas Brawl Block also that technology is what led to the um, in Innistrad the flip card sheet, which does yeah. kind of effect, which is the next step, which is the Masters all foil every pack is a foil. That was the other kind of addition to this world where you start including premium product in every pack, and 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 it does make a difference if you're opening up a Masters pack, especially the first set, you, because you now have a one in four chance in every pack you're opening to open up a foil or a rare and that rare a second rare and that rare is foil meaning it's premiumized just increased the value of every pack you're opening pretty significantly especially with the depth of how good the rares were in that set not to mention just the commons where you could you know foil pads at the time worth 20 dollar cards and i think all three of those pieces of technology then lead to to the next step but even before we get to the Mystical Archive, the first step is booster fun. The like, wizard sat down and was like, okay, opening boosters is an activity people like to do, but every metric that exists says that you should not be opening up draft boosters. 
the way draft boosters need to function to be able to make draft work means you should never open one of these packs. So how do we make opening, like, what do we do to fix that, right? What do we do to make it so people will open more product, which obviously Wizards wants you to do. And that is where Booster Fund came from. And that's where we went from one pack existing. And this happened with Eldraine. One pack existing to four types of packs existing. You have draft boosters, which are meant specifically for draft and function as packs have always functioned. You have set boosters, which are uh, product priced at a draft booster price point, but are built to be opened. They have more themes. They always have a specialty artwork card inside of them. They have a card that's a reprint set the list, which kind of plays into the old era of what we were talking about that was going on with Zendikar, but not as bonkers. And then uh, of being able to get reprints in, you then had, originally they were theme boosters. You would buy like a black mana booster and it would only be black mana cards that were all like based on a theme from that environment. Those were a failure of the product and have now been replaced by Jumpstart. Uh, packs for sets, which are really meant to just be like, these are packs for beginners to buy. And then there's collector boosters. And those are always like all foils with alternate arts, five rares per pack, whatever weird premium experience, that's where you can get foils. The commander products that are being printed along those sets will have their cards from that, but as premiumized versions, either full art or foil, also included in those packs. Just significantly increasing the value but now these packs are baseline twenty dollars plus when they introduced collector boosters in 2019 is that is that moment booster fun or was collector boosters because i don't think there were set boosters from from eldrain i I think there was just all 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 four of those were um the the, eldrain was the beginning of um the concept of booster fun and set boosters launched with all, all, all four launched. It's possible that set boosters launched in the next set, like, but that was part of the rollout. So, so that I would agree that moment is the next moment. And it's kind of fascinating that really that's where they realize what you're saying. You know, I do think that the thing I did forget about was the, the masters thing, the one foil per pack deal. What's kind of happened you know, what's happened now since the introduction of collector boosters is that they've made it very clear. There are, there are magic players who will play with their friends and they, they don't play limited. And all they really want is to have, there are a few decks they really love and trick those decks out with the fanciest, prettiest, coolest, rarest version they can find. And they're going to make their goal and their focus to have that. And draft boosters serve no purpose to those people. They don't want to crack a case to try to get the best version of the card. They're either going to buy singles or they're going to buy some singles and they're also going to spend money on the premium experience of trying to get things they're excited to open. And you and I, we talked about this on the show. Like, It's a little weird uh, because of the way that the secondary market works. You can't trick it. There's no way for, for a product that is highly sought after that has a high-priced top end to sell even if what you're opening feels exciting while you're opening it, like it feels expensive. If you open enough of it and people open enough of it, most of that stuff that's both expensive is going to go down in price. The top things won't, but most of the mid tier and low tier will. So my, my modern masters, sorry, uh, my modern horizons to collector boosters that I open, like two boxes of them have gone down in price enough where there's only a couple cards I opened that actually are worth much. Most of the stuff that I opened when I opened it was like, I have three different foil printings of ignoble hierarch. None of them worth more than $3. And all three of them, I was like hyped to open. I remember. So there's a level to like, there's a, there's a parasitic feature to the top end, which just sucks away the long-term value of what you're opening. Well, and that's, and that's, you know, th- that comes to kind of the lesson of world wake, right? Where it's like a box. Right. The, sorry, the values of a card in a set are only equal to how much, how many you open in a box or of whatever product of box, right? So Jace the Mind Sculptor was worth $100 when it was in standard, and it was the only card in Worth Wake at the time worth anything. Creature lands, 
worth nothing. Stoneforge Mystic, worth nothing. Literally, when you opened a box, you were opening a bunch of chaff and you were hoping to get the Jason, the Jace Lottery. And it was worth $100 because he showed up in about 1.3 boxes and a box's SRP at the time was $70 to $80. And so it was like, you're probably going to open a Jace if you open a box. You could miss. You're like Every box has like a 20% chance of missing. And that's where the extra $20 foil, came from on how much Jace. Jace was worth. You there could you. open a foil, Jay. Well, and you could open up a foil, right? That 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 added the other part to it. But the the box can only be worth that. So now, if with serialized, well, we haven't gotten serialized cards, but with with mystical archive cards, you know, the when you're opening up a box, because there's a card in that set that is a demonic tutor that has amazing alternate artwork that's worth sixty bucks if you open it. Every other card is now going to be worth that much less. When you're opening up a Modern Horizon set, because you have Raghavan, the Elementals, Force Negation, and Renin Six, every other card can't be worth that much because those are the cards that are like when you people are op- like otherwise. Because because what ends up happening is if a card is if a set has enough cards in it and it's a four print set, like the Wizards is just printing it to demand, and there are enough cards in a set where they are worth more if you open multiple of them than a box, then re- then then stores will just start opening them until the price decreases. It's like a very easy graph of if it's worth more to open a box than to sell it, stores will start just opening them until it is no longer worth more to open a box than to sell it. So, so collector, set, all those booster packs get introduced in 2019. Then something really fascinating happens, which is that we have this booster fund concept, but the pandemic hits six months later. So we don't actually get, we don't actually get the experience. It's not even six months; it's less. We don't get the the store experience of going to the store and buying and getting that cool, fun thing of collector boosters and all that. Like, in fact, those next few sets are kind of a wash on some level. Like, they don't feel as real in people's memories as I think the last three, like two or three years. Like, it's I guess that was three years ago. But like those next couple, like Coria, Theros Beyond Death. Um, they feel weirdly stunted, like people's memory of those sets and what they their impact and the in-person card opening experience is very, very, very different. Well, because basically start- draft didn't exist in person for those sets, right? So for the most part, collector boosters and set boosters were the name of the game because if you're going to buy a box to open, you bought a collector booster box or a, a set booster box. And, and that's where the like, that's why in my head, it's like... It, Icori is just Godzilla characters and and or comic book art characters. Like the, the actual yeah. set itself, I like you know is secondary. So it's it's literally fairly recently that we start to get the experience of of the next major thing, right? And that's the serialized card experience. You talked about the we're going to have an alternative sheet on most sets. Well, Strixhaven was really successful. The retro artifact sheet that happened in Brothers War is very important and one of my favorites. But you also could open the serialized version of those cards. Only, so in, just only in Brothers War. It wasn't in Strixhaven. Yeah, yeah. Brothers War is the first one. That's the no. first time you could open. So it wasn't the first time. The first time was Viscera Seer. Backwards Viscera Seers in Secret Lairs. So the thing that we haven't brought up that is the next step in the premiumization of things is the existence of Secret Lair. Limited sure, time sure. release. You have to buy it within that month. If you don't, you can never get that artwork on your cards. And then each one of them is a secret card on the bottom. Most of the time, they're of a series. So for a long time, it was uh, stained glass window versions of the Planeswalkers from War of the Spark. Then it became um, the basic lands, but foil from the original um, Jumpstart. So there are all these really cool concept lands that you could only get in foil if you got them in a secret layer. Then it became Slivers. Um, and it's been slivers for a while now. I'm so excited for it to not be slivers anymore. Um, but then last summer, I believe they included a series of, uh, viscera seers that had number stamps on them. And it was the first time they printed a card where it was like, Oh, this is a, this is zero, zero three of a thousand. Uh, I forget the exact top end number. And that's the only one. And they're going for thousands of dollars. 
Wasn't that because they had accidentally printed a backwards viscera sear that shipped to someone that someone sold, and they were like, "Oh, this is cool," and they were no, like, "No, no, no." They, well, they always had the stamp on them. The the, the very the, it was the, they didn't tell anyone. The way people found out was that, that someone opened up secret layer and opened up a viscera sear, and it was like zero zero five or whatever. And they're like, "What is this?" Got and then it, people, got it, got and it, then okay. Ben Bellway said this really good article breaking down like what is going to be the price things. He's the first one to bring up that like hashtag you know number one through 10 and then 69 and 420 are going to be like the most expensive ones. Um, and that's the first time we see serialized cards and it was a test and it was successful enough that then come to brothers war, the, all of the artifacts on the mystical archive sheet also have serialized versions of them. Yeah. There's a major difference between the serialized cards. So, so a couple things happen here, right? You get the viscera seer thing and secret layers both existing, which now people like, the biggest difference between the introduction of Secret Layers, do you happen to know off memory, because I know you've been buying since the beginning, when Secret Layers started? Was it like 2018? That's like what it feels like in my memory. The first one was, like- was 2019. It was either 2019 or 2021. No, it couldn't have been 21. It, 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 19 no, 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 no. it was 21. It was 21. It was, it was after COVID. It, was, it wasn't, it wasn't, Secret Layers didn't exist before COVID. Are you positive about that? No, it was it was December 2019. So secret layers, incidentally, are introduced really the same time the booster fund starts. So you have this whole extra element and layer that is now printed into no no pun intended that is printed into magic and the collectability of magic. But the fascinating part about both things is that we didn't have magic events. These things started releasing, and you started opening packs, and there was no physical place other than your local store that might be open where you had to wear a mask, probably no one was around to go buy cards. There certainly were no big magic events for the next year. So they were rolling out secret layers left and right. You were ordering them, you were opening packs, but it really wasn't until late 21, early 22 that you started going back out and actually seeing magic cards, which is why I find myself now when I trade with other players where I go to conventions or I go to stores, I see a crazy number of, versions of cards i've never seen before and it's exciting for me i'm not a secret layer guy you are i i I pay attention but i don't buy them so when i see like a like a card i really like and like an art style foil that i've never seen before i get really hyped about it i really want to get it and that's that's a big feature right now if you're getting into magic you don't have any memory of a time when that wasn't the case you're like oh i should play i should be playing ponder in this in this uh commander deck that i'm building that's blue I'll see what how many ponders there are. And you're like, oh, there's like 17 ponders, right? Or you're like, and there's, that's too many because I think they've only made two, two of them in Secret Layers. But like most iconic magic cards have a half dozen or more printings now. Some of which are very rare and expensive. Whereas if you had gotten into magic even just four years ago, you would not have had that experience at all. The most printings of any one card was probably like a bad common or something. Or maybe an iconic common like Giant Growth or, or Giant Spider or something. But like you didn't have billions of different types of artwork and crazy weird printings and different foils, different styles of foils like you have now. So I think what happens with the release of, of you know, the serialized foil in Brothers War is that now every magic set that comes out, every single time a product gets released, as an audience member, we have an expectation there will probably be something cool and weird and rare about this set. There'll be something extremely hard to get that everybody wants. And the difference between what you mentioned for Brothers War and March of Machine, where you'd get one of those cool planeswalkers, one of those cool legendary creatures in every set, is that Lord of the Rings, there's the serialized cards only exist as just a very specific one card and one card. You can get a bunch of different cool serialized versions of a Soul Ring or you can get the one ring. You don't get one in every pack. <laughs> There's no chance. You can get elven and dwarven soul rings that aren't serialized, and those are also rare, but it's not. you don't get one in every pack. You don't get a shot at it, which means it's more like it used to be, which is buy, 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 to hope you get something cool. And that's why Lord of the Rings and this particular set is such a kind of a moment. It's such a moment why we wanted to do this episode is because What's it going to look like going forward? You know, the March of Machine thing feels kind of like the perfect happy medium. Like you have serialized cards, you have splashy cards, multiple kinds of foils. Most of them aren't that expensive. Draft was fun. Collector boosters were really fun. Lord of the Rings is not as fun to open for me. It feels 
a lot swingier. I'm not that excited about most of what I open, unfortunately, not because the set's not good, but because of the way that the top end is so skewed. Yeah, it, you know? it's 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 a weird because there's 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 three things at at battle, right? The first one is the cheaper Magic the Gathering is from a tournament perspective. The the individual pieces, the cheapest version of every card is there is an argument the better it is for the game, or is the better it is for individual players, right? Like I can buy into a format. I can get any card from Aftermath or Brothers War for pretty cheap because every card that's not a premiumized version or a serialized version is being paid for by people trying to open those packs to get the serialized versions or premium versions. And that's theoretically a net benefit. Negative side of that, now when I open packs or I draft, there's a chunk of the value from that experience that was making my money back opening up a good card or making, you know, making it worthwhile to open packs that is significantly less is a lot swingier. If I'm opening up a collector booster pack, if I don't open up one of, you know, the, the serialized cards or one or two of the actual rares in the set, I'm just out, I'm, I'm out money and I'm out a lot more money, right? It's now a 20 to $40 pack versus a $5 pack. At the same, and then the third, the third negative, because 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 I, I do want to lean on like I think the first area is the most important, but the third negative is like retailers having to deal with the middle value because of cards just totally being gutted. If you're a LGS, there is a real concern right now because basically the middle class of Magic card doesn't exist. You're either you have three dollar cards and you have you have twelve dollar cards. The, the six dollar card like doesn't exist anymore. It, even the like the ten dollar card is rarer and rarer, right? Like it used to be like if you were open a standard pack, there'd be like one or two twenty plus dollar cards. Those are like the chase ones that you really really want. Um, and then there was like a bunch of ten dollar ones, like three or four, and then a bunch of five dollar ones, and a bunch of you know. And now it's just there's draft chaff. There's there's fifth. There's there's bulk or there's 30 plus dollar cards and there's no in between. And at the pre-release, there's maybe a few 10, but then as the set goes on, it, it that drops away. And for LGSs who then also have to spend a lot more uh, manpower, just sorting sets because there's now six versions of every card. It's really pushing LGSs into a tight spot. Well, also the other part about that, that I think is really hard is they have no incentive to buy cards at the pre-release or the release from people at anything other than a completely unreasonably low cost. Because if they spend $3 on a card that's going for six, if it sits in their case for two weeks, that card's no longer gonna be worth six. It's gonna be worth a dollar. So much, so much product is gonna get opened. Everyone's gonna have it. So that rare that was six bucks, that was like, you know, nice meat and potatoes card, it just, it just lost 80% of its value because they didn't sell it in time. So they have no incentive to buy anymore. Like their only incentive is to buy the expensive cards. All those cheap cards, they're just going to hold off on buying. I've had a couple different local stores tell me we don't buy cards in the first three weeks anymore. We we wait. We wait to see where the market settles because things are so volatile when they when they when they first launch. And I think that's really tough. Um, now, the flip side, if we're looking at the positive and the negative, of this is that you know, overall, competitive Magic is cheaper than it's ever been. You can build. There are so many good cards for less expensive. Even the good ones have less expensive versions. There's a way to get into Magic's most popular format, Commander, where most of your best cards don't cost a whole lot. You can you can build a Commander deck with two $16 cards and then a whole bunch of stuff for like 3 or $4. And a lot of stuff for like $0.50. Cents. You, can, you can build a Commander deck pretty reliably for under $100 uh, and have a pretty good deck, like a fun deck to play with cards you like and it, in some cases, even cheaper. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a very possible thing to do. Um, even standard is, is much less expensive than it used to be. It doesn't really drive the price of cards the way that it once did. That being said, my question, my last question for you before we wrap up. We've now had the one-of-one serialized card. In that same set, the, the rings, the, all the soul rings, I think they kind of represent like, more like what I would expect going forward. I don't think every set's going to have a one of one. 
what do you think we're going to get? Like, what version do you expect? What is the most likely feature going forward in sets? I, I think serializing will continue. I think it'll continue when it makes sense. Like, I think anytime we get an archive-esque experience, we'll get it. Um, but I can also see Wizards just including serial archives. I think, I think there's a chance that the next, like, four sets all have serialized cards. And then they pull back. I think like it's possible we've like Brothers War was a test, and then they did it for Aftermath, and they did it immediately for Lord of the Rings, and they're like, okay, serial cards are these things are gangbusters. The PR on them is amazing. Let's make sure they're in every set, and then they'll learn pretty quickly that it's another diminishing returns thing, similar to the Expedition series is, and they'll pull back and they'll move and they'll it'll be become more of a special thing. I'm at, like the thing that I'm interested in seeing. Someone opens up the One Ring; they sell for two million dollars. Yep. And then we go and we go to the Star. We go to Star Wars. The next, the next Doctor. big one is Star Wars, and there's a Darth Vader's lightsaber, and it's zero zero one out of zero zero one. Does the One Ring go down? Does does the one ring lose its value because there's now a second zero zero one of zero zero one? It's now technically it is one of two different cards, but no one's playing I this card, you, right? This is a collector item. I can tell you why, and I can tell you why it will never go down. It will do nothing but go up. Both of them. And the reason is because it doesn't have anything to do with Magic the Gathering. It has to do with the fact that there is a much larger audience for Lord of the Rings and Star Wars worldwide that love those things more than people love magic. Well, and I someone I don't think I don't I think if they do, I don't I, whatever the next 001 or 001 doesn't get close to what the one ring gets to. I think it's the most expensive magic card ever printed and it won't nothing will ever compete because it it will it will have diminishing returns. There is something Maybe, special about this moment. I don't think that printing Doctor Who artifact that I don't know what it is is going to be competitive, but you just said Star Wars. If you're talking something on the level of Lord of the Rings, if it's the Infinity Gauntlet, if it's if it's the, I mean, Darth Vader's lightsaber but is not as iconic. Part of the value of this thing is it's the first thing to do this as well, right? It's not. It's not just like it's not just this is a Lord of the Rings thing and it's zero zero one and zero zero one. It's it's the first and currently as we stand only zero zero one and zero zero one. If as soon as they start printing the reality, more of them. A, there's the reality. There's only one buyer out there right now offering two million dollars, right? There, there is there is a finite number of people that have that much money that are willing to spend it on cardboard. And one of the reasons that two million dollars is because there was a bidding war between the five people that do have that much money, and that person is the one that got public enough to sell it. Now, do I think Cassius has an offer from Post Malone for five million dollars? But Post Malone doesn't want to be out there posting that he's going to spend $5 million on this card. So Cassius, you know, whatever, I don't know if it's five to one, but like, you know, I think sure. like the people offering $2 million for it have a buyer that's more private that wants them to do the vetting and all of that stuff and the publicity part sure. of it so that they can buy it secretly from them. Yes, for sure. But I think that like, I don't think, I don't, I don't think a card is ever this expensive ever again. Uh, I mean, I I have two thoughts. My one thought is that someone buys this for two. I thought I saw a three million offer, a three million dollar offer, but someone buys this and then it goes down pretty rapidly over the course of the next two years. Like, but like the value is based on an offer, so like it it going up or down is impossible to track anyway. Like it, it it's worth what someone pays for it. If there's only one, then it's like it it, it, it won't it won't go down in price because it's not a market, right? There's not like another one that's being sold, blah, 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 blah. It'll only go down if they sell it to someone for less than they bought it for. That's kind of why I think, though, Magic is doing nothing but grow in popularity. It's almost like if someone buys it for $2 million and then it sits for three years, then the next time somebody offers, someone's like, I need to own the only one of one. I'm the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. I'll give you $4 million. Like, I think that's what will happen. Oh, Same no. way that I think if there's a one-of-one one Star Wars card. I think the one ring can go up. I think there's a lot of room to go up. I don't know if 2 million is the cap. I'm saying whatever the next 001 of 001 is will not be able to defeat this card. And I, and I honestly, in some ways, think it coming out will damage the value of the one ring. 
like the second one that like if if the if the lightsaber comes out the one and the one ring sold for three million and then the zero zero one for zero zero one lightsaber sells for one million the one ring is now worth less yeah i i think you're underestimating how much money people who love nerd stuff have i think if there's one of it i'm I'm not no matter what I, I understand that there is a there is probably a Star Wars fan that has more money than a Lord of the Rings fan out there that would want the one thing, but it's no longer the one thing. It's the one of two thing. Even though they're different cards, they're still the one iconic IP magic card. That right now there's only one, but as soon as they release the second one, there's two, which makes the first one worth less. I think so. Again, if you ask me the same question, my short answer is they won't do it right away. There will be another one of one, and it will be the next time we get something else of a level of iconic history the same way. So I think that that's true. I think that the the like Elven Rings are way more of what I expect. I think there being yeah, an Elven yeah. Rings style in every set, like something a, a single card or a three cards that are like extremely sought if, after in very cool versions. If I'm Wizards, the next thing I release, there's five of them, not one of them. Sure, sure. And I actually think it's possible that if I did something like there's five of them, they could be worth more because because so, there's going to be a person who wants to own all five. All Especially five, if they're yeah. a thing like, I'm trying to think of a good, like, say, or, they, yeah, say it's I've... the fifth element and it's like, just and they do all four of the stones and they're all zero, zero, one and zero, zero. They're all one of four, right? And if you collect all four, you have... Fifth element's a terrible example. I want to do Harry Potter. No, but, but you could, you could, you could like, honestly, if you think about, I mean, I'm not thinking about necessarily the, the the franchises, but the cards that make sense. If there was five mana crypts and they were the five infinity stones and the one, one, like, or six, like. Right. The infinity know, that, stones that are perfect, right? It's, 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 they're, they're all called infinity stone. The, the, that's the problem is that you'd have one of each. I'm trying to think of something that if you collect like seven, they, you know what? They do Legend of Zelda, and there's four heart pieces, and those are, there's only four of them. If you get all four, that's a full oh, playset, yeah. and you are the oh one that has 001, 002003004, and that's it. And the, and the four of them are like borderless and form the full heart. And they, yeah, together exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> those so, so. could be, those, I, that's what I would do. I wouldn't do you'd a 001. Be- I would do a collect them, I would do a playset. And and if you ever got to the point in your life where Kess became the biggest company, if on I was Planet if I was a Earth, billionaire, if like yeah, I I'll tell you, mm, two million dollars <laughs> is a lot. Would I buy all four Zelda heart pieces? If I, I I'll tell you this, I would definitely try and buy the heart pieces before I would get in a submarine that would go to the bottom of the Atlantic to see the Titanic. <laughs> I think if you were a billionaire, there's no question you'd do it. I think if you had if you were a hundred thousand hundred millionaire, you'd still try to talk your wife into it. You'd probably get told no. I want to say if I was a billionaire, I'd try and donate a lot of that to yeah. <laughs> much better causes than me buying before Zelda pieces. But yeah, no, but like, I, I think like that's what I would do. Okay. That's, that's my final, cause we, we are running out of time. My, my final yeah, yeah. statement on this is wizards shouldn't, should wait a very, very, very long time. If ever printing a zero, zero, one of zero, zero, one. But I think a one of one four is a sick it's- idea. It's the one ring. Like, that's the thing about it that's so special. It's such an adjacent franchise in terms of its sort of themes to, to magic that there's a part of it that I've always been like, I've said this many times. I've always described magic as poker meets chess with the Lord of the Rings theme. So, like, the fact that the one ring you can get and there's a one of one version makes perfect sense. I think, I think we have both sort of shared. We expect there to be more of this going forward. I agree your statement a second ago about them rolling it back the same way they did with masterpieces is probably pretty likely for serialized uh, because like what's going to happen is at a certain point, the same way the invocations were someone is going to open a serialized number 137 out of 500 mediocre card. And it's going to be like worth $2. And as soon as that starts happening, like consistently where there's enough things like that in sets, then the serialized thing becomes useless because now I open a serialized card, which is my one in a million. It's, it's not even worth the cost of the pack. And I think that that is a real thing that'll happen. If it's a bad card, then, you know, you can expect that to happen. So, um, either way, guys, thank you so much for listening. We will be back with our next episode soon. I think 
There will probably be one more episode before it, but we're going to do a Commander Masters review episode soonish. Uh, it's coming out soonish. It's can't, I can't believe it's just around the corner. Like we're we're not that far from it. So, um, make sure to follow Kess at Kess Wiley on TikTok. The at the MM Cast on TikTok as well, which is like I'm. That's where I'm doing the majority of my content. I've got some fun series on there. I started doing the Pack to Power trade thing that John Medina originally started, and I've been making trades trying to trade a uh, Nuka Penna garbage pack up into a piece of magic power. It's going to take me a year. I'm estimating 65 trades to make it happen, but we'll see if it ever happens. But I'm chronicling the whole thing on TikTok, so be sure to follow there. And uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty much what we got going on. Get excited for Kess's releases, you know, the games we talked about, Spy X Family, Sonic, Murder We Wrote. Come see us at Gen Con. Yeah, it's yeah, gonna if, be if you're at Gen Con, we'll also be at PAX West. Um, PAX I'll West. Barcelona. Magic but, Con Barcelona. I'll be in, I'll be in yeah, Spain. Magic Con Barcelona. But, but if you want to try out the Spikes Family game and the Murder We Wrote game, if you want to see Ben, there's many places you can go. If you want to try out these games by cast, those are the places to demo them. And then and then they'll be for sale at stores in, in uh, October. So uh, thank you, everyone. And, and we'll see you all next week. Bye, guys. This has been a production of Time Traveler Media.